Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Happy almost Christmas. On today's program, I'll talk to the artistic director of American Blues Theater about the company's new permanent home and its popular holiday tradition of presenting It's a Wonderful Life. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me for a look back at the year in Chicago theater. We'll highlight some of the big developments of 2023. Later in the show, I'll take you inside one of Chicago's longest-running holiday traditions at the Museum of Science and Industry, and we'll hear from the owner of a local doll shop about the increased popularity of Barbie this year, plus some of my favorite Christmas songs. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in this morning. I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there and you can hear me, show me the way. I'm at the end of my rope. Show me the way. It's a new day at American Blues Theater. The Chicago-based theater company has been entertaining audiences for 38 years. It's currently presenting its annual holiday production, It's a Wonderful Life, live in Chicago for the 22nd year in a row. But for the first time ever, American Blues is mounting the Christmas favorite at its own theater space. The company opened its first permanent home, a two-theater venue located in Lincoln Square slash West Ridge, earlier this month. The opening represents the culmination of years of planning and hard work and the beginning of a new chapter. For as long as I've been artistic director, it has been one of my goals. But prior to that, I know that the organization I joined 25 years ago, 1998, and we were looking for a permanent space even then. So this this has been a long time coming for us. That's American Blues Executive Artistic Director Wendy Whiteside. I recently caught up with her to talk about the new space and what's next for the Chicago Theater Company. She says being an itinerant theater presented a number of challenges over the years. When we first started producing shows, um, after the sort of reformation in 2009, we knew we couldn't afford a permanent space back then, so we started saving our whatever pennies we could, knowing that there was going to be a time in the future that we would be able to buy home. It's not dissimilar to when... Um, an individual buys uh, a home for the first time. And part of the issues that we were having when we were renting uh, at different venues in Chicago is that there are so many incredible theater companies all vying for the same space that if we wanted to run, say, for six weeks uh, and the show was going really well and we wanted to extend it another two, sometimes we wouldn't have that opportunity to extend the show because the venue had another theater company coming in. 
to rent right there on the tail end and we couldn't extend. And this is not a situation that is just, you know, specific to us. This happens to all of the itinerant theater companies that are renting in venues. And so the other thing that can sort of be a problem is branding. So people think that when they go to a theater venue, the theater venue are producing the show, and that's not necessarily always the case. Sometimes it is. Um, but a lot of times you'll have multiplex venues that have multiple different theater companies um, that are doing different shows throughout the year. And so um, your patron might come to that venue because it's in their neighborhood and think, oh, my gosh, this venue just does the greatest, biggest range of <laughs> shows possible. And it's really, you know, 10 different theater companies that pay rent to that venue. Right. So during the pandemic, um, we were hopeful to come back. Um, we had been renting at stage 773, and we were hopeful to come back right after the pandemic. But they changed their renting model and turned into an art installation that does drinks. And it's called Whim, and they no longer rent to theater companies. So we ended up for a year producing at four different theaters and basically asking our patrons to come along with us for the ride. <laughs> and so and and so it was it was a little complicated to get the word out of like, oh we've we've moved again. Now we're producing um at this theater in Wicker Park. Oh, now we're going to be producing in Edgewater. Um, for the most part, though, our audiences did follow us, and that's a, lot, a large credit to them um, for being interested in our programming, no matter where we produced in the city. But that's not a sustainable model, and we couldn't find a venue after some of the other venues closed up. Um, VG was no longer accepting renters. Royal George closed. As I mentioned, Stage 773 was no longer taking renters. So we knew we needed to have our own space, and it was getting pretty dire. And so we really put the search out there. And when we found this little space, it was a box, just a big white empty box store that was used as a Dollar General. And um, during the pandemic, the Dollar General uh, stopped their lease and moved out. And um, at the time, we looked at it. We thought it would be great. We could move in a large theater and a small studio space. And we actively were pursuing it for about six months with the, the owner at the time. And uh, it's just been a dream come true to purchase that site, which also has a accompanying small parking lot, um, and then do the redevelopment of the space into a theater. And that particular space started off in the 50s as a mobile gas station, and then it moved into a Walgreens, and then after Walgreens left, it became the Dollar General. So it's always had the ethos of working class, which matches our mission. Um, American Blues Theater is is really about blue-collar workers, so we, we feel it's a really good fit for us. And it's in the West Ridge neighborhood, and the neighborhood and Alder Vasquez could not be more welcoming to us. Once the search process ramped up, was geography, was that a factor? Was there certain types of neighborhoods uh, the company was hoping to land in? Yeah, so we've always, and this is our 38th year producing, and we've always produced north of the river. And so when we were looking for spaces, that was sort of, we wanted to 
sort of stay where we had always been for 38 years, but we had opened it up to say we would go as west as 90 I-90. <laughs> and so it was really a wide open uh, space for us to look at. Um, I think before we signed the paperwork for the space, we reached out to Alder Vasquez to make sure that the community was interested and would support having a professional theater in the neighborhood. And we found out that they had never had a professional theater and that Alder Vasquez had started an initiative really to, to make the arts a priority in Ward 40. And so the timing was perfect for not only the community, but also for us to partner together. And then uh, the pandemic obviously brought uh, a whole set of challenges, but just from hearing you talk about it, it sounds like in a weird way, it almost then spurred, kind of got things in motion to, to get you to this point. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think we get to a point where um, after the pandemic, I think everyone felt this, not just in the theater community, in the theater sector, but in in your personal life, in any sort of industry that you're at, I think the pandemic really showed people or really sort of distilled everything down to its basics, right? Of this is what we want to do. This is how we want to move forward. And if that's not possible, let's rethink the model. And that's certainly what happened to us when we lost our long lease at stage 773 and we couldn't find another venue that could serve as a long lease for us we had no other option (laughs) and so it really was a you know a break it moment for us if, if we didn't go that route and many thanks to our board and our major donors for supporting that it certainly helped our staff to have one location (laughs) sure once you figure out the actual the land where you're going to build then was there like a wish list of the kind of the amenities what the structure would look like yeah so before we we started planning um to purchase a space back in 2017 um and again we did not purchase it until we started seriously looking into 2021 and then we purchased it in 2022 and now we have moved in in 2023 but back in 2017 we did a feasibility study both for fundraising to see how much of a space we could afford as well as a feasibility study for the actual physical space and that's where we all brainstormed and said okay do we need to have what size of theater do we need to have how many bathrooms do we need? How many do we need a green room for the actors? And and you literally make your sort of wish list and you kind of go through a Moscow analysis of um, what's your must-haves, your should-haves, your could-haves. Um, and so we've, we've really brought it down to what we needed uh, in a building, and that helped when we began working with uh, a realtor so we could see the square footage and we knew the footprint that we wanted to be in was um, about 10,000 square feet, which is what we got. A parking lot was considered a bonus, but it wasn't necessary. And so when we did have this attached parking lot, which is about 16 spaces, that was a treasure in Chicago. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about, uh, was it Raven theater? They have like a little parking lot. So that's a nice bonus. 
so the new space will have the like a main theater and then uh, like a, a black box or like a studio theater. Yeah, yeah. The main, yeah, that's right. So the main theater is about one thirty-seven seating capacity, and the stage is in a proscenium uh, form. And then the studio is a really intimate, sweet little black box, which we think seating capacity is about forty in there, and the projects that we can do in both um i mean even the 137 seat house is super intimate you're you're never further than say 20 feet from the actors on stage but the experience in um 137 seats versus 40 seats is going to be vastly different for patrons we experienced producing august wilson's fences in a 60-seat house, which had never been done before. Um, August Wilson, of course, is one of the greatest playwrights of, uh, of in America. And he his work had always been presented in much larger venues, as it should be. And so when we asked his estate if we could do it in a smaller theater, um, <laughs> they, were all, they said, of course, um, they were very helpful and supportive of us, but they were interested in how it would play, as were we, actually. Um, and what we found is having patrons, you know, feet away from an actor who is in the moment and experiencing all of these emotions and you can see you can see the tears roll down their cheek or you can see the joy it's it's just it's nothing like it and it's one of the strengths of chicago theater with all of the small and mid-sized theaters and the storefront theaters around 2021 when we're still like it's not clear what's going on with covid numbers and things is there any sense of worry as far as uh, this effort to open a new space? I think we assumed theater would survive. So it was important to us not to get a space that was aspirational. We wanted something that was realistic. Um, We wanted something that we could afford and that was the right size for us because we have always put people over things and we wanted to make sure that (laughs) buying a building didn't put us into debt and so um it was was important to us that that we managed the um the size of space and the and the mortgage and the debt of it all and so one of the things that was also important to us is we made sure that we gave all of our artists raises at the same time as we were buying a building because that's what is most important it's the people inside the building we talked at the beginning about some of the challenges of being an itinerant uh, company. Now that the new space is open, how do you envision it changing American Blues's future? Well, I'm very hopeful that this is going to help us expand our programming and we'll be able to do more productions for longer and we'll also be able to do new work and really reach out to the community with our arts education and uh, the schools that are in the neighborhood and having after-school programs and summer camps and other things to, to really get ourselves um, into the neighborhood. Our, our vision is to be a premier theater combining theater and service, and we're hoping that having, having a space and having a location really will be the anchor for that for us. 
If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the arts section. I'm talking with American Blues Theater's Executive Artistic Director, Wendy Whiteside, about the company's new theater space and its holiday tradition of presenting It's a Wonderful Life live in Chicago every year. My point is, you're the only man in town who's licked me. I want to hire you. Manage my affairs. I'll start you out at $20,000 a year. $20,000? Well, $20,000 a year? You're not talking to somebody else around here, are you? <laughs> you know who I am, don't you? I'm George Bailey. Yes, George Bailey, whose ship has just come in, providing he has brains to climb aboard. What about the building alone? Oh, confound it, man! I'm offering you a three-year contract at $20,000 a year. Is it a deal or isn't it? Oh, no, Mr. Potter, I, I know I had to jump at the chance here, but I, I wonder if you might give me 24 hours to think about it. Oh, sure, sure, sure. You go home and uh, talk to your wife, huh? Oh, yeah, I'd like to do that. <laughs> In the meantime, I'll draw up the papers, and once they're all signed, we'll set you up in an office right across the hall from me. Right across the... No, 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 I, I, I know the answer right now, and it's no. No doggone it. <laughs> you sit here, Mr. Potter, and, and you spin your little web, and you think that the whole world revolves around you and your money? Well, it doesn't, Mr. Potter. Why, and the whole vast configuration of things, I'd say you were nothing more than a, a, a scurvy little spider. Was there a discussion as far as what made sense for, like, the opening production in the new space? Oh, sure, yeah. We always knew it had to be It's a Wonderful Life. We've been doing It's a Wonderful Life now. Uh, this is our 22nd year. And the whole premise of It's a Wonderful Life is, you know, uh, uh, the working person really just wanting to have a good life, whatever that means to them. And, and of course, when a person is down on their luck, the community comes in to save them and that that is just i feel like a sort of tenor for for what we do at american blues theater and and who we are as people so we knew that that needed to be the show that we opened with just curious because you were with the company that first year when it was presented back then was was there any thought that this would become this annual holiday tradition Never. No, and even so, um, I started producing it. Uh, I was I was Mary Bailey from 2009 to about 2014, and started directing from 2015 onward. And we have all and produced it from 2009 onward as well. And we have always said, whenever the audiences are no longer interested that is when we will stop doing the show. And we have said that since 2004. And every year, audiences come back. We also find people who have never seen the show. And there is such a demand for it um, that it's really become our holiday tradition. And I, and I hope it continues for many, many more years. But it's really been dictated by audience for us. We never had an idea that it would be this successful. <laughs> We should mention for my listeners that maybe aren't as as familiar, it's not just, uh, obviously the film is really popular, but it isn't, uh, it isn't just like a standard, it's a wonderful life. So it's the, like a radio version, a a staged version of what it would look like on a radio broadcast. Yeah, that's, that's right. So when you walk in, 
you are in a transported into a studio, a radio studio, and it takes place in 2023. And there's an interactive pre-show with our cast where they play games and sing songs with the audience. And there's some musical improv and some quiz show and we give out prizes and it's so much fun. And then when we start the show, we go back in time to the 1940s. And that's where we tell the story of It's a Wonderful Life as a radio drama complete with audiograms, which are written by the audience during the pre-show, and commercial jingles to break out the scenes. And we created the script based on Frank Capra's movie, as well as the Lux Radio Hour version that appeared back in the 40s. Right. And adapted it that way. What an exciting time for uh, American Blues Theater. Wendy, thanks so much for making time to talk with me. Oh, Gary, thank you. It's been an honor. That's American Blues Theater Executive Artistic Director Wendy Whiteside. The company's new space is located at 5627 North Lincoln Avenue in the Lincoln Square West Ridge neighborhoods. It's a Wonderful Life, live in Chicago, continues through December 31st. You can find more information at AmericanBluesTheater.com. And a quick reminder, if you listen to the arts section on WDCB every Sunday, thank you. But make sure to also check out the show's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. Check out theartssection.org. Thanks for tuning in this morning. Happy holidays. It's Christmas Eve. I'm going to mix in some holiday tunes throughout the hour. Every year that I've done this show, I've tried to play one of my favorite holiday tunes just because for some insane reason it doesn't get radio play anywhere else. But for those who know, they know this should be a holiday classic. Marvin Gaye's Purple Snowflakes. Softly they float, where do they go? Summer flowers bloom Here in our nest We're surely blessed Over the heat She ain't like sweet Drifting on air Without a care Cover the ground Without a sound As sure as snowflakes night here with you
Marvin Gaye right there with Purple Snowflakes. And you are listening to the art section. My name's Gary Zydek. Oh, there's no place like home for the holidays. Cause no matter how... Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Gary. Happy holidays. Since we're coming down the, the home stretch of 2023, we wanted to look back at some of the big stories and developments in the local theater scene. Lots to discuss. We've seen some more leadership changes and a growing concern about the economic factors facing performing arts organizations. Chicago's Department of Cultural Affairs released a report this fall outlining arts and culture financial and operating trends in the years following the start of the pandemic. The survey highlighted a few alarming trends, including rising costs, problems with private giving, and most importantly, shrinking audience numbers. According to the report, in-person attendance naturally slowed to a trickle during the pandemic. In-person audience numbers recovered somewhat in 2022, but was still 60% lower than it was pre-pandemic. And this is something we've discussed on the show over the past few years. We knew there was a big question of how audiences would respond once theaters and performing arts venues reopened and in-person gathering rules were relaxed. And we've been talking about things anecdotally. This new report provides some type of data context. Carrie, what were your thoughts when you saw this D-Case report? You know, I mean, obviously it is sobering. I think people just frankly got out of the habit of going to theater. I think there's been a lot of theorizing about why people aren't going, and some of that has been colored by political agendas. You know, you could argue on the one hand, theaters aren't doing the work that interests new audiences. On the other, there might be people who are saying, quote unquote, they're trying to get too woke, although I'm not sure how anybody's defining that. But certainly I've seen you know, people saying, oh, well, they're just doing these shows that people don't want to see. They're too preachy. They're too this. None of this has been quantified. Indeed, it's not particularly quantified in this report, but it does give us some kind of a roadmap and some kind of a snapshot of the fact that, yes, audiences have been declining, funding has been declining. But within that, I mean, I I think the first thing, and I think, Jonathan, you would, would agree with me on this, sometimes we're not always the best people to be taking the temperature because we're often the opening nights, which are, by their definition, Brand affairs, they're usually pretty full. <laughs> Either paper the house, it's filled with critics, Jeff committee people, board members, friends and family. Um, so those, those shows can feel very full. I think what's illustrative is if we go to shows a little later in the run just to see how they're doing and see how the audiences have sustained past the opening night. 
Yet at the same time, I think it's worth noting that the Goodman, for instance, reported one of their best years ever uh, in terms of attendance. I think a lot of that was probably tied into their absolute blockbuster production of The Who's Tommy this past summer, which was selling out, and which is indeed slated to open on Broadway later in 2024, just in time for Tony Awards consideration, I believe. So it, it, it's sort of been a mixed bag. I mean, one thing I will note, and I think Deanna Isaacs, the culture columnist of the Chicago Reader, did note this when she wrote about the report, is that some of the companies have been doing, which you and I have noted, Jonathan, you know, shorter runs, a smaller number of shows in the season to kind of deal with, you know, some of the financial realities. And then it becomes sort of chicken egg, is doing fewer shows, meaning that you're getting... You know, by definition, fewer audiences. Is this going to be a long-term trend, or is this sort of a temporary, you know, kind of band-aid as they as they try to get over this hump? It is a bad time for not just theater in Chicago, live theater, but nationwide. Nationwide, our leading regional theaters mm-hmm. and many smaller ones beside are 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 pulling in their belts. They're cutting expenses. They're suspending production. We have the case here in Chicago of our Tony Award-winning Looking Glass Theater Company, which, uh, you know, last fall suspended actual production, they say, until the spring of 2024, and we hope that they will be back. We have another Tony Award-winning theater company, Victory Gardens, which has basically done everything but literally give up the ghost. They have fired all their staff. They are not producing they are a board of directors, a, a corporate entity, and a piece of real estate, which mm-hmm. is not the same as being a working theater company. It is a huge loss. In the case of Victory Gardens, it's tied into something additional. The pandemic and the shutdown, the 18- or 20-month shutdown, came right on top of the upheaval in American theater that was known as the we see you, white American theater movement, the the the, the theatrical extension of um, of the, the George Floyd crisis coming on top of even earlier, you know, um, doubts and accusations uh, of abusive behavior uh, of a number of artistic directors. Uh, this happened in Chicago. It happened na- nationwide. It's been kind of a perfect storm when it comes to the performing arts. And it's not just theater, it's dance companies, it's opera companies. It's uh, The Chicago Symphony Orchestra recently put out their annual statement, their press release. And while they said they had the best year they've had since 2018, they still finished about uh, a million and a half or $1.7 million in the red. Right. Fortunately, they have, uh, you know, they are well healed enough. They have a large number right. and, and it's they also worth noting that, but it's a, yeah. a sign of the times. Right, yes. I think a lot of the regional theaters have been struggling to adapt to that. Among the ones you, uh, in addition to the ones you mentioned, Steppenwolf, which has, you know, opened their glorious new theater and education center, which was already in progress long before the pandemic hit. Uh, they announced, you know, some some cuts in staffing and cuts in salaries. So even even though things that we think of as flagship, I mean, maybe in that sense, Goodman is kind of bucking the trend because they seem to have been doing pretty well overall, at least from what they tell us. But again, I don't know how much of that is due to the the phenomenon of Tommy, which just really did kind of become the breakout, you know, hit of the summer. Yeah, uh, I think they, a lot of it. I think a lot of it is due to Tommy. I think it shows that you know subscribership is down. Giving is down. Individual giving, foundation giving, 
to the performing arts, uh, corporate giving to the performing mm-hmm. arts. But people will still buy individual tickets to a hit, to a show they want right. to see. Tommy is a case in point. Perhaps would, the Lehman Trilogy at Timeline yeah. Theater was a case in point. So you can have big hits that will sustain you. But, you know, it, but I don't want to be all doom and gloom either, because I do think that there have been some bright spots. Uh, there has been new leadership, and I think you, you mentioned Chicago Shakespeare. Barbara Gaines, the founder, uh, finally did step away. <laughs> and, and Chris Henderson, her longtime executive director, had done the same about a year earlier. It's now in the hands of uh, artistic director Edward Hall and uh, Matt, uh, executive director, excuse me, Kimberly Motes, both of whom have Terrific pedigrees. Hall is, in fact, a longtime collaborator with Chicago Shakespeare and is, in fact, going to be directing Richard III for them. Um, he did not program that himself. The season they're in right now was still programmed by Barbara Gaines. Uh, but he will be, you know, taking the helm on that production and then creating seasons moving forward. Uh, Kimberly Motes comes from the Children's Theater in Minneapolis. And so I think she's an excellent choice for the sort of community outreach yeah. and the education and, and uh, you know, uh, touring you know, youth productions that they've become very well known for. So there have been some, you know, there have been some good leadership announcements. One that we're waiting to see how it goes, Charles Newell, the longtime, uh, very well respected, and rightly so, artistic director of Court Theater, has announced that he'll be stepping away in in, uh, July from that, I think June, actually, 2024, I apologize, from that particular position, although I think he still plans to have, you know, a connection to the theater, but he will not be you know, the lead artistic director. So I'm sure the search for that for that post will be a very interesting one indeed. Indeed, um, that could be even an international search rather than just nationwide. Absolutely, we'll wait to see. <clears throat> yeah, well, all of that uh, all of that is true. Um, you know, something else uh, I, I think you uh, have made note of it in one of your written pieces, Carrie, is that um, shut down or not, there still are several projects uh, to develop new physical brick-and-mortar spaces for some of our well-established theater companies. A few of these have been uh, postponed or pushed back because of the shutdown, and uh, the price has also gone up for almost all of them. But we have the project still are in the works. Indeed, uh, American Blues Theater actually opened their they holiday show in December <laughs> in their new space. The other bricks and mortars projects that are in progress, Steep Theater, the wonderful smaller mm-hmm. off-loop company that is uh, uh, makes uh, its home in uh, Edgewater, they are in continuing to re, uh, refurbish the old Christian Science reading room they took over on Berwyn and Kenwood. Uh, they've already produced a show there, but the, they haven't actually finished the the, the, the physical rehab yet, so that that probably will show up during the current season. They'll they'll have that finished. Uh, Northlight Theater is on track to build a new permanent mm-hmm. home in downtown Evanston on Davis Street. Though that project has been uh, pushed back, I believe, about a year mm-hmm. in terms of the schedule. But they are fundraising. And uh, Timeline Theater, the price tag from when they announced originally, <laughs> which was in 2019 before the shutdown or 2020 before the shutdown they're looking at 24 million dollars now it's up to 40 million dollars they have put together 37 million of that right. needed 40 million so they are on track to begin work 
Additionally, there are a couple of venues that I'd like to mention that are opening in areas that have perhaps been more traditionally underserved by uh, cultural centers. Definition Theater, a BIPOC-led company that's done some wonderful work over the years but has been itinerant, is moving ahead with plans to build from the ground up a new center in Woodlawn. Originally, they were going to take over an old church and convert it, and they found out that it would actually be more cost-effective to just build from scratch. Theater Y, which is a very community-oriented and wonderful company in North Lawndale, took over an old storage facility there. When I say storage facility, you're probably thinking something very generic. This is a beautiful 1920s-era terracotta edifice (laughs) that they've taken over. They're going to be producing there. They're hoping to have partners with various bookstores, art galleries, and other kinds of components there. And they have a large uh, training component as well, um, working with the youth of North Lawndale. So that's a really encouraging sign. And though it's not a theater, I think it's worth noting that for the first time in a very long time, Chicago has an actual bricks-and-mortar theater bookstore, The Understudy, uh, opened in March in Andersonville. And I don't, if, if anyone's up around that area, even if you're not looking to buy theater books, just go into this store. It's lovely. They have wonderful pastries and coffees. They are planning on doing, and they have been doing, in fact, readings, panel discussions, really making it a community center. And that, to me, was definitely a bright spot. The Understudy is a, a lovely space. It's beautiful in there. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm here with the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanal. We're looking back at the year in Chicago theater. So we've talked about some of the openings. Unfortunately, on the other side of the spectrum, we've had some theater organizations pull down the curtain. Yeah, Boho being the one that comes to mind immediately. Uh, they had just opened in January with, a, with a, I thought, a, a very fine uh, revival of the late Jonathan Larson's Tick, Tick, Boom, which featured an all-trans and uh, gender non, uh, non-binary cast. But then by spring, they had just decided they were, you know, they were done. They just couldn't keep doing it. And I think partly that speaks to these smaller companies that, you know, that do have costs. You know, especially in this age of increased attention to pay equity, you know, they're trying to pay people more. And I think that we're really looking at, I don't know if I would call it a crisis, but it's definitely worrying that a lot of uh, arts leaders in these smaller companies are feeling burned out, feeling unable to keep working and negotiating the shifts that have been happening when they're not really getting paid a living wage. Uh, That was definitely, I think, one of the issues with Boho, which has done wonderful work, musicals, as I mentioned, but also new plays, classics. So that's one one of the losses I'm feeling. And I think it would behoove us, or maybe those of us who have the ears of funders, perhaps, which probably isn't me or you, Jonathan, but to be advocating for the idea of sustainability. Are we looking at grants that are not just project-oriented, but can we find ways to make it a little bit easier for the people who do the day-to-day to keep these companies running, feeling like they can do that without giving up absolutely everything else in their life, including their physical and mental health, yeah. <laughs> you know, well-being yeah. in, in the process. Yeah, Boho was a concern. The, officially, the Bohemian Theater Ensemble called shorthand simply Boho, and uh, we will feel the loss of that company. Indeed, Should we cover some of the personal losses, some of the people who have passed on I, I, this year? I think so, you know, and that's, uh, you know, I, I sometimes do write obits for some of the people who have passed, you know, when I when I have the chance to do that for the reader. Too many people that we lost this past year. Well, I'll start out. No one, sure. knows, no one knows how ephemeral a performance is. It's not the same twice in a row. No one knows that more than the stage manager of a theater. Uh, one of these uh, under-recognized and under-acknowledged under professions. You know, once... 
once the production is up and running, the director isn't there anymore, and the producer isn't there anymore. But the stage manager has the responsibility not only for seeing that the show gets done each night and on time, but for discipline, if it is necessary, Mm -hmm. for calling rehearsals and so forth. And one of the greats among Chicago stage managers was Deb Acker. Deb Acker, the production stage manager at Chicago Shakespeare Theater for many, many, many years. Uh, I had the privilege of knowing Deb and working with her back in the 1980s. And uh, she was a, a wonderful and dedicated artist even then. And uh, she passed away this year, and I want to acknowledge Chicago Shakespeare Theater, which is notorious for how technically difficult its productions are. Chicago Shakespeare Theater would not have achieved what it did on stage without Deborah Acker as production stage manager. And I have a person who's also kind of a Chicago Shakespeare connection, uh, Jeffrey Carlson, who is perhaps best known for playing one of the first trans characters in a a soap opera. He did have a film and television career, but he'd also performed a couple of times at Chicago Shakespeare and is perhaps very well known and very loved by Chicago actors in particular for training classes that he did for many years with his longtime uh, creative and professional partner, Susan Hart. They taught Shakespeare classes that were small seminars for actors. I have never known anyone who has taken those classes who hasn't told me just how life-changing it was, how it made them understand the text and understand Shakespeare in a way that they never had before. And I thought it was so interesting that so many of the tributes Jeffrey Carlson were not just about his, you know, his groundbreaking work playing a trans character, looking himself as not trans, um, and, and that representation um, and the care that he brought to that portrayal, but it's about teachers, right? I think that that's, we are such a great town for teachers, Jonathan. I know you would agree with me there, because you are one. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. and I feel like that, it was, it was so interesting to me to see all the attention on Jeffrey Carlson's career as an actor from outside Chicago and within Chicago from people in the theater community. It was like, this person helped me develop my chops as a Shakespeare actor more than anything I ever had in my life. You know, so, and that, I just found that very touching and very moving. And Indeed. every time you go to Chicago Shakespeare, I'm sure you can see some, you know, some of that still shining through with the people that Jeffrey and, and Susan have um, helped train. And a name that perhaps is more of a household name earlier in 20. 20- Frank Galati, the legendary director and writer, creator of Steppenwolf's uh, groundbreaking production of uh, adaptation of The Grapes of Wrath, um, passed away. Um, I think he had been ill for a little bit, so not complete surprise, but uh, he taught at Northwestern. Mary Zimmerman was one of his acolytes, the great Mary Zimmerman. I, I don't even know how you begin to, to quantify Frank Galati's impact on American theater um, but, but Jonathan, I'm sure you knew him better than I did. I mean, what, what a hole that leaves in our, in the fabric of our, of our theatrical I, in, cosmos. In, indeed. He was a legendary figure. He was a sweetheart of a man who never got angry at people and never shouted. He was a writer. He was an actor. He was a creator in in the in the in the true sense of that word, you mentioned his wonderful production of the Grapes of Wrath, which he adapted and directed uh, in Chicago and then on Broadway, won a Tony Award for it. He also directed Ragtime, the the groundbreaking musical, Tony Award-winning musical. He wrote the screenplay for The Accidental Tourist. He did it all, and he also acted and 
a greatly beloved figure. He was inducted into the American Theater Hall of Fame a year ago, November, November of 2022. I was at that induction ceremony in New York and saw him there and had a short visit with him. And uh, and he passed away in January, just a few months a few months later. The great I, Frank Gatti. Yeah. A lot happened in, in 2023. Thanks to the dueling critics for helping us look back. Next week, we will hear about their favorite productions of the year. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. I'm Gary Zydek. This is the art section. Barbie dolls are always a big seller this time of year, but 2023 may be the toy's biggest year to date. Thanks in large part to the summer blockbuster film. The Barbie movie was the biggest box office performer of the year, taking in over a billion dollars globally. All that buzz surrounding the film has also sparked interest in Barbie dolls. Fortune magazine reported that doll sales at Mattel are up 24% this year. Reuters reported vintage Barbie prices increased an estimated 25% this year thanks to the movie. In the Chicago area, there are a few vintage toy shops still around. But if you're looking for vintage Barbies, there's nothing like Gigi's Dolls and Sherry's Teddy Bears. The shop, located in Chicago's Norwood Park neighborhood, fills its 5,000 square feet with every type of doll and doll accessory you could ever imagine. Gigi's Dolls and Sherry's Teddy Bears is owned by the mother-daughter team of Gigi Williams and Sherry Balan. When I was young, probably around four or five, she pulled out her old dolls and I fell immediately in love with them. And so I loved the Shirley Temple that she had. This is Sherry Balan talking about how she first fell in love with the dolls. I visited the extensive doll store located at 6029 Northwest Highway on the northwest side of Chicago. Balan says what started as a hobby for her and her mother quickly turned into something more. We did a lot of antiquing, so we were always looking for dolls, and we did the flea markets. There used to be Harlem Irving flea market years ago, and then we used to do the Wheeling flea market, and we used to look to our dolls and other treasures and do antiquing up in Michigan and Wisconsin and even local around. So we had fun looking for things, and it was a fun hobby, and then we started selling things off. We started with doing a flea market, and then we did garage sales. From there, opportunities kept growing, and the idea for a brick-and-mortar location presented itself. We were invited to do the first toy show, which was 50 years ago, and we did the toy show, and then we started putting on doll shows. In 1981, I opened a doll shop out in Plainfield. I was driving 100 miles a day, and then we decided, when my mom retired from being a dental hygienist, to open a shop, so we opened in the Oak Mill Mall in 1983, and then uh, we moved from there to 7550 North Milwaukee, and now we're at 6029 North Northwest Highway. We've had this shop for 30 years now, and we have 5,000 square feet of antique to not modern dolls. We still do shows. We still um, buy collections and dolls and have lots of fun. Balan has seen a lot of doll trends over the years. We saw, you know, the rising of uh, the baby market with the antique dolls and you know, the French dolls, and it's just kind of an interesting thing. We saw the Cabbage Patch raise up in the 80s, and that was a horrible Christmas because nobody bought anything except <laughs> Cabbage Patches. Right. 
And uh, so it's been fun, and it's been great working with my mom every day. You mentioned trends, of course, dolls themselves, I can imagine, but then also just probably the way you operate, because when you first started, there was no eBay? No, there was no eBay. So a lot of things have changed with eBay because when things, you would get a special treasure that, you know, it was like, wow, this is, you know, the first one that I've ever seen of this. And then all of a sudden when eBay comes, you know, it's like, oh, well, it's not so special anymore because, you know, there's people all over the world that are like listing it or looking, you know. So it's definitely made a big difference on the market and it's definitely hurt the prices considerably especially now with everybody downsizing and you know putting things on there for almost nothing sometimes it seems Gigi's dolls does maintain a presence on eBay selling various dolls to online shoppers but Balan really enjoys the in-person aspect of her brick and mortar store I definitely would prefer to have something in my hand than just looking at a picture I mean even if I'm shopping for clothing or piece of anything I would prefer to be able to touch it feel it that's why we love having the shop it's a an exciting thing because you never know what a day is going to hold who's going to come in what they're going to bring what they're going to look for if we have it for them we have lots of things to look through and lots of things to you know help people out with we have people that come in from all over the world which is exciting If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the arts section. I'm talking with Sherry Ballon, the co-owner of Gigi's Dolls and Sherry's Teddy Bears, one of the last true doll shops in the Chicago area. Where are we going? Barbie Land. What? Mom, are you really going to let Barbie take you and your tween daughter to an imaginary land? Yes, and you want to know why? Because I never get to do anything. I didn't even go on that cruise I won at your school raffle because I didn't have enough vacation days and your dad's allergic to sun. Oh, what about that? You can't just leave him. He'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, he'll be fine. The Barbie movie was this gigantic global sensation. I feel like it it sparked a renewed interest in Barbie, not that Barbie never went away. She's been a a constant in people's lives, always a popular toy. But does it feel like with the movie there's a resurgence in interest in the, the dolls? Are you getting that here at the shop? Yes, we are. I mean, Barbie has always been kind of a constant. I mean, I had Barbie when I was young, and I still have Barbie. And going through the years with, you know, having the ponytail, going to the bubble cut hairstyle that Jackie Kennedy had with the pillbox hats, and, you know, just the hippie era and the workout era with uh, Olivia Newton-John and all that lovely spandex. Uh, <laughs> but, uh yeah, I mean, she's always been there, and it's it's wonderful to see, you know, how they've improved some of the things. Some of them, they should go back to, you know, some of the wonderful fine detail that the original had. In fact, we're sitting here playing with dollies, right? <laughs> and we have Barbies over here. Um, she's wonderful, and I'm looking forward. I haven't seen the movie yet, but I've heard lots of good things about it. So are you getting more calls or more people reaching out with interest? I've had um, a lot of people that have um, said that they have their old Barbies and, you know, they're bringing them out or maybe they're bringing them in for me to look at them, let them know what they are. Um, Some people are selling them. You know, some people want to add to their collections. We have lots of people that come in from all over looking at different things and um, lots of people have been calling in regards to the Barbies and just, you know, finding things in their closet and going, oh, yeah, I remember that was in there. How about people who, because of the movie, are interested in collecting Barbies, maybe getting back into their existing collection or starting a new one? 
We have some people that are um, interested in looking at what's coming out, what is out, and uh, in getting some new things for their collection, whether it be clothes for their collection or another doll to add to it. And we have a lot of vintage clothes, so a lot of people, you know, want to go back and go get that solo in the spotlight or the silken flame outfit or, you know, some of the classics that they remember from the kid being a child. And then for people listening who maybe do have some Barbies packed away, what are you looking for if you're going to buy somebody's Barbies? Everything is condition, and so if they want to email me some pictures, they can email them to questions at ggsdolls.com. We can also, um, you know, if they want to make an appointment to come in for me to look at them, just call ahead of coming, make sure that I'm here, and I'll be more than happy to look at them. A lot of people think, oh, well, it's kind of dirty, dingy, and everything else. Don't clean anything because you could ruin it more than um, helping it sometimes. So it's better just to leave it the way that it is and let me look through and um, see what you have before you take the time and effort in cleaning things. Are there like some holy grail Barbies that you're always looking for? Oh, a number one, a number two. Those are always the holy grails. Um, But I just... I love Barbie and I love the clothes and some of the clothes are just absolutely amazing and you know there's different eras of them I of course grew up with the 60s my squirrel ponytail so I'm very partial to the ponytails but uh, I love them all. So obviously Barbie's in the news right now but dolls in, in general is the collector market stayed pretty steady through all the years you've been doing this? Oh uh, we've seen dips and, and rises and I think 9-11 made a big hit on the whole collector's market and everything kind of slowed down from there and uh, but people are starting you know to collect and again and what we need is a lot of newer collectors coming in because of course the regular older collectors are getting older and we need some new blood in there to you know help the collector market continue and to love what's all around us i mean so many people don't want anything which is really sad but you know they you know you get something and you just appreciate it for what it is that's sherry balan She's the co-owner of Gigi's Dolls and Sherry's Teddy Bears. It's one of the last doll shops in the Chicago area. You can find more info about it online at ggsdolls.com. My name is Gary Zydek. You're tuned into the art section on an unseasonably mild Christmas Eve here in the Chicago area. Hope you're having a great Sunday. Since it is Christmas Eve, I'm mixing in some holiday tunes this hour. Here's one of my favorites from Ella Fitzgerald. Have yourself a merry little Christmas Let your heart be light Next year all our troubles will be out of sight Have yourself a merry little Christmas Make the yuletide gay Next year all our troubles will be miles away Once more, some 
day soon we all will be together if the fates allow until then we'll have to muddle through somehow so have yourself a merry little christmas now Fitzgerald with her rendition of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. That's off her 1960 holiday album, Ella Wishes You a Swinging Christmas. Thanks for tuning in this Christmas Eve morning. Means Merry Christmas to you. Bon Natale to everyone. Happy New Year and lots of fun. Bon Natale. May all your wishes come true. Bon Natale. You're listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. Happy holidays. One of Chicago's most popular holiday traditions is also one of the city's longest running. The Museum of Science and Industry's Christmas Around the World exhibit is back for year 81. It started as a tradition in 1942 during the war. Uh, Some people wanted to find a way to kind of lift morale around the city and thought that doing a decorated tree at the museum would be a great way to do that. So they reached out to different cultural groups from around the city. This is Jeff Bonomo, manager of special exhibitions at the Museum of Science and Industry that first year there were there was one sad lone tree by the coal mine that was redecorated every night by about 12 different groups and then 80 years here we are it's just grown into this kind of museum love tradition Chicago love tradition that people just come year in and year out to see the the exhibition and celebrate their cultures as as well as other people's cultures and see how we're more alike than we are different that original tree when you say that different groups would come and decorate it was it tied to it was like the ally countries yeah that year was more of our ally countries but over the years we've tried to diversify the the, the globe of representation here at the museum and so how many countries now now we have 55 trees representing countries and we also have eight holidays of light that focus on holidays that are more about light and enlightenment and don't necessarily need a tree to do that 
These days, more countries are represented, but the tradition of volunteers decorating the trees remains the same. Yeah, we're actually standing here in the rotunda as we speak, and you can see that we've had many different volunteer groups from around the city come and decorate trees. We provide a tree with lights, um, some refreshments, ladders, and then they bring all the decorations and their friends and family to help decorate these 12-foot trees that grace the main floor of the museum. Community groups or groups of residents? Sure, it's a whole bunch of different organizations, as you can imagine, over the 80 years that have come up. Sometimes it's church groups, sometimes, like you said, it's families, sometimes it's uh, the consulates. So it's a little different for every tree, but they are all uh, labors of love. But yes, they do have a long history of kind of passing down the tradition of decorating the tree to families and generations. Um, so many days you'll see grandma, their kids, and their grandkids here all decorating the tree uh, at the museum. Any estimate of how many folks engage with uh, Christmas around the world and the holiday of lights? Uh, it's thousands upon thousands of people. It's one of our busiest times of the year, so we always encourage people to get tickets in advance online, which now you can do time tickets, which helps with that process um, and ensures it's not as crowded throughout the day. Um, but yeah, I think we'll have a very good season this year after a couple seasons where it was not necessarily our, our normal holidays. Right, because I think in 2020 you guys put up the tree, but then the, the situation changed. Yeah, in 2020, I think we had Christmas Around the World open for about four days, and then unfortunately, due to all the mandates, we had to close the exhibition. As Bonomo mentioned, Christmas isn't the only holiday being celebrated at the museum. 29 years ago, the institution introduced a companion exhibit, Holidays of Light. In 1994, we added Holidays of Light, so that's display cases for eight different uh, holidays, such as Diwali, Ramadan, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, that really focus on more of the kind of the candlelight and the light. Uh, behind their holiday traditions. The day I was at the museum, a volunteer was working on one of the Holidays of Light displays. Trying to figure out how to design the Kwanzaa exhibit for the Holiday of Lights portion of Christmas around the world. This is Rosetta Cash. She's been putting up the museum's Kwanzaa display for around two and a half decades. I'm a member of the Comedic Institute of Chicago, and we are the ones who have been doing this for how many years now? Over 20-something years has it been? Yeah, it's been a while. Do you change it up every year? I change, I try to change it up every year. The, the problem comes in is because the, the symbols don't change. So I have to try to come up with creative ways to make it, to use the same things, but make it look different each year. And that's a challenge. <laughs> That's a challenge because I have the big signs, I have the same symbols, because the symbols don't change. You have the, the canara or the candle holder, you have the unity cup, you have the corn, uh, you have the fruits and vegetables, which represents the harvest, because Kwanzaa means first fruits, and it's, it's in honor of the first harvest. Uh, it was a holiday that was created for African Americans to get in touch, more in touch and more in tune with their African culture and heritage. So, uh, and it's not based around a person, but it's based around a a more of community than a, a, a person. There are seven principles called the Nguzo Saba, which represented by the red and green candles and the black candles. The black candle 
is the single one that goes in the center. It represents unity. And the other candles represent other aspects of principles that we can live our lives by every day of the year. So Kwanzaa is from December 26th through January 1st. That celebration is a culmination of everything that you have done throughout the year. So each day a different candle is lit, starting with the black candle, alternating red and green, and acknowledging each of the principles that go along with those days. And at the end, uh, that last day is a day called Imani, which means faith. And that's the day that we have the Karamu or the feast when everybody comes together to celebrate the end of one year and the beginning of doing it all over again, even better for the next year. Okay. You get a lot of questions from folks walking up? Yes and no. She's fielding the question. This is my niece, Patrice. She's joining me this year and she's fielding the questions while I'm trying to figure out what to do. <laughs> But yeah, usually every year, you know, people come up and they ask, and I try to answer. So, how did you uh, get started doing this? I got started doing this because I answered a phone call one day, uh, and they were looking for somebody to do a Kwanzaa exhibit for the museum, and here I am. <laughs> so it is, it's been over 20 years. I want to say probably 26 or 27 years since I've been doing this. The Museum of Science and Industry's annual Christmas Around the World and Holidays of Light exhibits are on display through January 7th. You can find more information at msichicago.org. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website over at theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM. For another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. I hope you have a great holiday. No matter what you celebrate, I hope you're with people you care about and are in good health. Thanks so much for listening. Tiny tots with their eyes all aglow We'll find it hard to sleep tonight They know that Santa's on his way He's loaded lots of toys and goodies on his sleigh And every mother's child is gonna spy To see if reindeer really know how to fly and so i'm offering this simple phrase to kids from one to ninety-two although it's been said many times many ways merry christmas to you